You're listening to Your Rivers Are Wrong, the podcast. My name is Merle. I'm here with my good friend Dante, and we're here to build worlds and tell their stories. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, whenever you may be. Welcome back to the Your Rivers Are Wrong podcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dante. And I'm the other host, and my name is Merle. And we're here, as we are every week, to talk about the wonderful whimsies of world building, the arts and aesthetics of setting up a setting and telling stories born from it. Yeah. All right. We took a break for just a week because we needed it. Mm -hmm. You guys won't notice because this is coming the week after the Uh previous episode. Uh, But we're gearing back into (laughs) recording and it is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I do have to ask, because this would be following up on the previous episode, how was your trip? How was the UK? My trip was so good. I have like <laughs> like homesickness, but from like something that's not your home. Nostalgia, I guess. <laughs> oh, there's definitely a word for it. I don't know. Melancholy. So I'm, I want to go back. <laughs> it wasn't long enough. I love these people mm. that I'll never see in my life again. Ugh. Oh, gosh. It's the worst. Remote friends is great, but then also sometimes it's just regular friends that just live real fucking far and it sucks. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the number of times I was asked, hey, you have friends in Europe? I'm like, yeah, is that weird? And they're like, yeah, it is weird. How do you have friends? Who live <laughs> How do you do it? Ocean? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I still don't understand. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, you would know this, yeah. But it was just so great. And we had great weather, which was awesome. Nice, nice. And the people were great. And I've never seen so many people like nerd out over illustration in my life, which was good. <laughs> Very satisfying to be in part of, part of the bubble. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Yeah, all the good things. And you watched a Broadway show, right? I also did. I would almost forget because <laughs> there was so much cool stuff around. But yes. So for the uninitiated, I went to Cambridge for a study trip because I'm doing a remote study, like a remote master's study, which is illustration for two years, or this is like my second year now. Mm -hmm. And because I went all the way to fucking Cambridge, then I was like, okay, if I'm going to end up like close to London anyway, I mean, (laughs) when am I ever going to get back to London just casually? I don't do that shit. So I better like enjoy it. Yeah. So I went to see the Phantom of the Opera on my own, which was something, but very awesome and amazing to see and it was so good i love musicals i love illustration (laughs) i I remember um i asked like oh tell me how it goes and you send me the picture of the fan of the opera theater and then like radio silence i'm like oh it must have been bad (laughs) (laughs) oh no (laughs) no oh that would have been that would have would have been sad if i would be come home from that on my own in the shitty hostel that i stayed and then it was like well it was kind of mediocre (laughs) that would have sucked thank god it was amazing no, mm-hmm. I was trying to update people like during my trip and then I forgot who I said what to. <laughs> this is what <laughs> happened. And then I came to Cambridge and everybody was like needing social energy for me and I forgot to make big like update That's at all. Totally fine. <laughs> you know, it's how it goes. But but yes, it was very amazing. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And as it's been explained to me, since I've been in Europe, we have kind of a chain of passing on like an illness <laughs> from one to the next to the next yeah um it's what's it that about like, <laughs> can we stop it please <laughs> since the top of september it's been either i've been sick or mel has been sick yeah and it is a little less fun but today it's her turn so hey. I, I get to have a perfectly fine recording as i understand it you're recovering you're doing better i'm doing like pretty good now like my nose is a little bit stuffed maybe you can hear it but mm. all the rest is fine so i can just do things again 
but I just have to like be distant from people, but I can interact in public at least. So that's good. But yes, <laughs> nice, nice. right after my trip, I got COVID, <laughs> which sucked. And then I, how much longer is it now? Like five days later, six days later, I'm kind of good. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I'm glad it's not longer. So I hope awesome. you're going to like be fine when I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> when you heal up, send me a text so I know to watch out. Um, yeah. Because I'm glad you've been better. You've not coughing and you're not coughing anymore. Yeah, I'm doing much better, which is wonderful. I think right. there's a little bit of cough every now and then, but I think that's just because the seasons are changing. Mm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have a good week in general? Uh, I I did. I think the highlight of the week, which I sent to you, is that I went tandem biking with my uh, siblings, which yeah. is wonderful. We oh, so fun. A nice ride on conjoined bikes through the autumn trees of Pennsylvania. That looked so a, a pretty. A trip. Yeah. It was. It was. Until we had to bike uphill back to where we came from. <laughs> and it was more exhausting than beautiful. I but, hate autumn. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly a lot less pleasant. And uh, something happened this week, which is very fun. I got to play a couple new tabletop RPGs. So I got Ooh. to learn a couple new systems. Nice. One stuck out to me was Masks, A New Generation, which was a superhero based, said like a New Yorker superhero, uh, <laughs> superhero based tabletop RPG. You got to play as a, a teenager who is working their way through both school and responsibilities of heroism, which is very, very fun. Sounds so. good. Yeah. Did you just yeah. like happen to stumble around it and you bought it or did you like play it with friends or how did that go? Oh, there is a Discord uh, hosted by Magpie Games, the writers of that RPG. Mm. And once a month, they hold a community day where they hold free games for anyone who wants to learn the system. Oh, fun. It was me. (laughs) It was was me. me. I I was the community. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very fun. And I'm I'm aiming to learn these like besides D&D, which I've kind of at this point played for half a decade. And I'm like, okay, I want to try new things. Give me some new things. Mm. And it is so, so fun because it touches on a whole lot of different tropes and storylines. And I'm very much enjoying it. Yeah, super nice. With that said, I think we're going to jump into our podcast, typically on these episodes. In our <laughs> actual on these podcast instead of just yeah, hanging yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We could talk about our lives for the rest of the podcast, but that's not what you're here for. No. What you're here for is good, gritty world building. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Give me every the world week. building. <laughs> the world building. Give me that storytelling. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Every week, we meet back up at the transatlantic table and bring a topic or a prompt related to the field of world building or storytelling. Merle has a topic, I have a topic, and at the end, we end it with a prompt to world build entirely improvised. But I believe today, Merle is going to be starting us off with her topic. So yes, I'd love to learn I what it is. Will. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm thinking Very of a excited. cool bridge and I don't know if I know anyone. <laughs> You're anything. the first topic. You don't need a cool bridge for the first topic. But I always feel like sometimes we're so good at bridges that I feel pressure when I don't have any. <laughs> okay, I'll just throw it in. You're, you're going to have okay. to do the honors in the second one. I'm sure, expecting sure. a lot of you now. You're going to bring up the average. <laughs> okay, I okay. got <laughs> to make up for the bridge. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah Of yeah. course, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I want to talk with you about um, the idea of a no man's land. Ooh, interesting. By which I mean, I guess the sort of boundary between places, either literal or it can, you know, if there's like cool no man's land metaphors, you know, I'm also in for it. But I thought specifically about sort of boundaries between countries, right? The specific image of a sort of barbed wire wall with like a lot Mm. of nothing and then a bunch of soldiers and a gate you can't pass. And then suddenly the country begins. But all this in-between space is kind of a weird 
like it's not really a place it's not really a destination but if you want to pass like there's all sorts of interesting storytelling around this specific area and i think that's really nice mm. the one thing i thought about just to kick things off i guess is the movie 1917 that i saw with my dad in the cinema mm. and it's very much a war movie and usually i'm not super into war movies this one was like 10 out of 10. It was super good. And sure. one of the things that, that struck me about this movie is that there's so much empty space. There's so much sort of desolate land that no one goes to because it's either been bombed or people have just been sort of moved out because there's nothing around or, I don't know, there's like threats that are too high, so they move elsewhere. So this is all kind of ruins or just desolate. And two of the main characters are basically traversing a lot of that space to get to a specific place. They have a sort of secret mission or a sort of important paper or, I don't know, form, I forgot the plot, <laughs> uh, that they need to be signed by a general that's all the way on the other side of, of things, right? Of course, of course. The movie is basically this whole journey through this landscape where suddenly things are super heated and you get in the in the heat of the, well, fire or the war, basically. And at other times, the whole background is just basically white skies and sort of boring tundra kind of fields. And that's what they're just walking through all day. And it's a very strange place to set a movie in. It feels very in between things. It also mm. somehow makes your characters very anonymous. Yeah, so I want to talk about it. And I feel like there's more examples like this out there that are really cool and that I didn't think of. So we should talk about it. Yeah, of course. I do want to ask you about the movie because that's so interesting. Was the whole movie taking place in this weird, arid, like wasteland or was it like only a part? Mm. I feel most of it, because this is what I remember very vividly, the sort uh. of almost white backgrounds of like cloudy skies and just nothingness around. But I mean, they had places, there were like, it felt a little bit like like a play, right? They had certain structures or acts in between, or, you know, at some point suddenly they found someone alive in a sort of empty city, right? Something like that. But then Got it. usually the sort of whole landscape around it feels super empty. And then I think the movie starts in the sort of base camp or whatever you call that in like of course, war. <laughs> There's probably like <laughs> soldier terms for this that I don't know. <laughs> soldier base camp and they get mm -hmm. the assignment and then they basically do the whole travel and they find stuff and they lose stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a Got whole journey. It. And then eventually they end up at the general. But I think the main, the sort of meat of the movie is really in this sort of empty space. Got it. Okay. So, so when I think of like No Man's Land, when I think of these vast spaces of nothingness, it pretty much epitomizes the phrase, it's about the journey, not the destination, right? It's a, a process of a character being met with a trial or a tribulation mm. and them kind of growing or adapting to survive it. Uh, I think that's also a big theme, survival, like making sure that you make it through safely. There's always a big focus on like rationing your supplies. There's always a big question on sanity. And we can touch on these little things as we go. But when I think of like no man's land, I don't know if you have like an equivalent in the Netherlands. But for us, that's like the Western deserts and uh. like Area 51. And Area 51 is like when you were describing the, the whole situation, Area 51 is like a place that's gated off from the world. Only the military can step into it. And it's basically where all like the supernatural alien stuff is kept. Uh -huh. Supposedly. Uh -huh. Supp allegedly. I was going right? to say, like, I only know the sort of the fact that it was a big meme at some point or a big sort of <laughs> pop culture yes. or something. And I never really got the context. I only know this word and that everyone had opinions about it. <laughs> it's basically where things that the public shouldn't know about is kept. Oh, and it's not okay. like documents. It's like physical things. 
Right. So the those America memes that it's like where they keep the aliens and where they keep the UFOs and all that stuff. Uh, and I think sure. just I think just last year uh, there was like a meetup across the internet to meet at Area Fifty One and like break into it. Oh, that's what what this was. Yeah. Yeah, and people like arrived and they just like <laughs> we're, we're trolling about, but like they didn't amount to anything. But basically, the, these big expanses. It's always like point A, point B, like you said. Like you start at point A, you have to cross this space, Dora the Explorer style, <laughs> to get to point B. Yeah. And the trials that come of it. Now, I got, I got, I'm going to put a general, a general line out there, and feel free to disagree with me. Mm-hmm. It's not usually a place people like. It's not a pleasant place. No, right? definitely agree. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like uh, Studio Ghibli uh, going through the plains on a on a nice on a nice train or on the back of a cat. It's yeah, it's wholly unpleasant and trying. I guess would be the word. It's also, I guess, meant to be nothing, which is different from like planes are just sort of undeveloped. I guess, but Nomad's Land is specifically a sort of well, I guess if we're talking about boundaries or sort of these, I guess, military terrains or whatever, mm. then it specifically is something that no one should go or that no one can own. Or can live in. Yeah, it's like an untamable land kind of situation. Yeah, but it's not because people didn't try or there's just so much land around it. No one really cares about whether something is developed or not. Mm-hmm. It's actively because it shouldn't be livable because it's a boundary that people shouldn't cross or whatever. Or people shouldn't be at all the time. Yeah, mm. like either it's inhospitable or marked as off limits, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, whether by a greater power or a government or something like that. Absolutely. And it was so interesting how you brought up that this movie was almost entirely based in this land, because when I think of like No Man's Land, right, I always imagine that when this is brought up, it's like an arc, right? There's like a couple of episodes dedicated to this one spot or maybe 30 minutes in the movie dedicated to this one spot Mm. where like there's just clearly something that the main character has to do, but they have to get through this place to get through it. And it's not always the whole story. It's always like sometimes it's like a little portion. And I know we reference Avatar quite a bit. But the see the arc where they're walking through the desert because they lost Appa, they lost yeah. their main mode of transportation. That's, That's like episode. no man's land arc, right? Mm, and yeah. they're all going crazy. They're getting mad at each other. They're getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. It's the endurance, the endurance part yeah. of a series or, or in anything. Yeah. And they're truly like lost. So in terms of storytelling, this is a fantastic place to kind of test the metal, test the, the so to speak, constitution of the characters and see if they can handle this pressure. And it's not like an overt villain that's like beating down on them and making fun of them as they go. It is a force of nature. It is a Mm. difficult time that they cannot necessarily be angry at. They can't like vent towards it because it's it won't respond. There's nothing to respond to. It's (laughs) it's, it's, desert. Yeah, it's impersonal. You know, Uh, you just have to suffer. And the madness or the anger that comes of it has to be somehow released onto either themselves or the people around them. And that's when the tensions kind of, you know, that's the meat mm-hmm. of, the, of the story there. Yeah, for you know? sure. I feel like there's maybe two versions of a nomad. No, I keep saying nomad's land because that's also a movie. <laughs> that's very confusing oh, to is. my English speaking brain. <laughs> I feel like there's two versions of no man's land as well. Because mm-hmm. I also know about these stories. I guess a sort of obvious example is the Berlin Wall that separated Mm. East and West of Berlin during the Second World War. I feel like there's a lot of, honestly, from a sort of entertainment slash storytelling perspective, very interesting storytelling, interesting stories, probably based in real life, of like traversing the wall, right? And this kind of story is very much structured 
almost obviously kind of in by which I mean in an obvious way like there's literally okay first you have the fence and then you have the guard post and then you have the I don't know 200 meters of empty sand where people can shoot you and then you have the barbed wire and then you have Mm. the actual wall and then you have the same thing on the other side it's almost like a sort of 10 step plan that you need to complete (laughs) in order to scale the wall and meet your family on the other side right right which already makes for a very literal and pretty yeah pretty great structure in terms of storytelling and then on the other side there's the thing where you're more battling yourself than the environment i guess or i guess battling yourself because of the environment where you talk about you know the desert episode in avatar where you're like okay we need to get from here to there and it's going to take fucking forever. And that's the whole premise. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing changes except for our, you know, dehydration and our mood, which gradually declines. And, you know, our um, tension in the friendship or in the teamwork that we're doing and stuff like that. Both sides of that coin are super nice and kind of both deal with Nomad's Land in a way, in a different way, in perhaps a sort of man-made way and a sort of force of nature way. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking on that, there is kind of two different kinds of no man's land. There's one that is kind of a forbidden territory. It's like it's enforced that you shouldn't be here. Mm. Right. And then there's one that it's like discouraged as in it's hard to live here. So don't go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to stop you. It's just highly Mm. discouraged, you know. (laughs) And and I mean, the real world parallel, obviously, is like the barrier, the line of demarcation between like North and South Korea. It's like that space where only the military supervises it and crossing it is like a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, novels that tap into the idea of just kind of escaping into this space. And sometimes this no man's land is very much a mystery. And since it's not like detailed to the main characters, uh, it falls into the category of some sort of freedom or escape. Maybe this is a place where they want to be uh, and they don't necessarily know the point B. Uh, I'm thinking of off the top of my head, The Giver. I'm thinking of Maze Runner. I'm thinking mm, of like anything outside of where I am is is better yeah. than, than this somehow. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, also, Promise Neverland for people who know that manga slash anime. It's people who are in captivity and they realize they're in captivity and they make elaborate plans to escape this sort of situation. They don't even know what's behind there. They don't know what the no man's land looks like, mm-hmm. but they know it's better than whatever they have. And that's kind of the appeal. Like you want you follow the story because you really want to know what's on the other side of the wall. And uh, sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's just nature or desert or dystopian futures. Uh, That's actually not nothing. That's a a big deal. But sometimes (laughs) just having nothing at all there is better than whatever you're going through, right? Sometimes you're trying to escape a situation. And when you get there, a place of true freedom, they kind of see the value in a place that is empty over a place that has been filled, Mm. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. This also, I mean, we're doing avatar references anyway. Let's let's do. Some Might more. as well. We've done it. We've <laughs> already opened the box. There's this one video essay. I don't know what the name is. I really should because it's really good. Um, <laughs> but it talked about the episode where Zuko visits Iroh in prison, and there's a certain mm. framing in terms of like cinematography, yes, yes, yes. where you see a lot of light on Iroh's side, even though he's behind bars, and then the bars are pretty close up to Zuko. So we see a lot inside these sort of prison cell of Iroh, right. and we see very little of the outside, which forces perspective a little bit as if Zuko is the one behind bars, because you can't right. see the ceiling, you can't see which way the lock goes, right? It kind of made me think of this, because there's kind of two ways you can escape, right? You either escape because your situation is so awful that anything's better than here, so I have to get out, hmm. or you escape to something that you love because you're trapped here, which is very much a knowing thing that you can long for yeah. or go to or wish to 
get to eventually. And it feels kind of like that shot a little bit in the way of like it really depends where your freedom lies. It's either knowing the outside and wanting to go to it, even though you know your situation now is, you know, safe or whatever. Or it's not knowing the outside, but being so done with the inside (laughs) that anything (laughs) works. Anything's better than this awful Mm -hmm. reality that I'm in now. And I think that's really fascinating. The motion of of escaping something like that is the same. You both try to sort of reach for something outside of your environment Mm -hmm. that all kinds of outside forces are trying to stop you from reaching. The sort of longing or the, I guess, the utopia, the the dream (laughs) can be very different. And that's really cool. Absolutely. Uh, And looking at this from like, for people who are interested in incorporating this into some sort of world building setting, uh, always put something really, really nice behind a long stretch of (laughs) difficult territory, like uh, the El Dorado of your setting, the Golden City, the, um, the heavens, the palace, whatever it may be, always put like a long and you could uh, merely can see it with my hands but <laughs> the, you guys won't be able to but like a, a nice little surrounding like sort of almost horizon, like a horizon holy moment yeah of like deserts and jungles and very difficult terrain because put that on a map and your players will absolutely love it or your <laughs> readers will absolutely be like oh what is that can we go there well well you gotta do these first and that sounds like an adventure to me so uh <laughs> yep, yep it is fun to question like what what is the motivations of the main character what is the motivation of the player of a party and or a protagonist do you want to escape point a or do you just really really want to be at point b it could be a combination of both it could be um Mm -hmm. but but usually it's it's not hey i want to hang out in no man's land it's not usually why people are there (laughs) nah you know it's not a lot to do usually yeah not really like any (laughs) movie theaters you can go to yeah (laughs) it's it's a great time of introspection of like looking within your. it's a great time for the for your main character to um what is it (laughs) To, to what's the word that that applies to all angsty characters brood it's a great it's a great place to brood oh yeah good for brooding yeah 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 mm-hmm, for sure mm-hmm. for sure lots of inward conversations hmm, yeah 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 i feel like there's there's a lot of inner monologue going on in like solo characters traveling and being very like broody about it which is very oh, cool. absolutely also yeah. storytelling it's all different genre but yes <laughs> samurai jack vibes much oh absolutely honestly i feel like just specifically the the sort of 10-step escaping the wall kind of story that I talked about mm-hmm. earlier is sometimes so satisfying to just consume as the one reading or watching it. Yeah. It almost feels like a sort of, what's that one called? Like Ocean's Eleven kind of heist, right? Because right, it's just, right. it's so planned. It's the elaborate plans. This is also why I love that, what's that program called? Like Prison Escape or something, or The Great Escape or something, where they say, ooh, <laughs> this prisoner almost escaped through the window and he had a secret <laughs> secret guy inside that brought him a knife and then he unscrewed the thing and <laughs> you know what i mean it's so satisfying because you're like there's so many possibilities that this can go wrong and with every mm. step you know that there's so little chance in succeeding and it's so satisfying when it almost or even for real does and i think that's very cool it almost doesn't even matter what's in the no man's land at that point right it's nah. just the the goal it's just, it's just the have escape to be, is so cool it's yeah. just the escape yeah and the process of getting there and of course the big reveal at the end of what no man's land is at the end is something we all kind of wait for with bated breath like what mm-hmm. is, what has this all been for yeah. right yeah, yeah yeah it's true that is wonderful it's a very cool structure the bank heist the ocean's 11 mm-hmm. version is very similar in terms of storytelling structure which i did not really realize and that's not nomad's land at all it's just a sort of i guess the heist schedule 
of cool stories that maybe I'm just attracted to. <laughs> but Twitch works very well when you have to like scale a wall with a bunch of guards in front of it. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, definitely like an act one heist, act two no man's land kind yeah. of setup. They're yeah, yeah, partners yeah. in crime. Truly. I would definitely watch that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Wonderful topic. That was a lot to think about. Mm. And I definitely took the opportunity because you gave me the onus earlier to kind of set up what I'm going to talk about for the second half of this podcast. Well, I go ahead, Dante. Yeah. So when we're talking about No Man's Land series, I listed a couple of examples that kind of crossed my mind, uh, which was in this situation, it was The Giver and it was The Maze Runner. Both of those books fall into a specific category that I want to discuss today for my topic for <laughs> your Rivers Are Wrong episode 34, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 34. Um, That's a lot. Yes. I want to talk with you and I I feel like you'll have a lot to you'll have a lot to bring up here. I want to talk to you about young adult fiction. Ah, (laughs) good old Um, genre. Yes. Yes. Young adult fiction for people who don't know. YA shortened for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are books targeted towards the age of individuals, (laughs) individuals, of of kids, (laughs) teenagers, ages 12 to 18. And this is a very specific category for a number of reasons. Basically, it targets a very specific demographic. It handles a specific set of topics. And uh, often falls into a handful of tropes because of that. So uh, the jumping point for this one, I want to kind of talk about or bring up the books that I had to read in school that kind of exemplify what young adult novels mean to me. And uh, you living in an entirely different country. I want to see if you know any of these books or if you've read them. Okay. 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 Just give me a straight yes or no for these books. Got All right. It. You're going to start real easy. Technically, this isn't a young adult's book. The second half of it is uh, Harry Potter. Yes. Hunger Games. Is this it? I know about it or I, I had to do this for school stuff? You know, you can mention if you read it for school or for leisure. Okay. So if it's yes, school, yes, leisure, and no. <laughs> okay, got it. Harry Potter, <laughs> leisure. Uh, Hunger Games. Yes, leisure. The Giver. Uh, yes. Not sure if it was. Re- no, I think it was le- Leisure as well. Okay. Yeah. One of my favorite books for a very long time. Holes. No clue. Lord of the Flies. Yes. And for school as well. For English. Got it. Cool. Cool. Oh, for English specifically. Specific. That's so interesting. Yes. The Alchemist. No, but I've, I've heard of this. I feel like this was on a school list somewhere. <laughs> okay. To Kill a Mockingbird. I haven't read it, but I think you you were allowed to. <laughs> you were allowed to? This is all sort of like general famous English literature that you could pick for your list, yes, right? Yes, So oh, this is how yeah, I know yeah. these titles. And because I watch a lot of English people talk about okay. books. <laughs> and the last book on this list that I have, not mm-hmm. obviously the end of the list of young adult novels, um, Tuck Everlasting. No. Really interesting. But I think there's a musical about it. <laughs> Isn't there a musical about it? <laughs> there, There's definitely a movie mm. about... Probably all of these. These are examples, uh, not counting Harry Potter, not counting the Hunger Games, because it's a series. Um, all of those books were, for me, mandatory English books that we read throughout middle school and high school. Uh, and they're books that have left a very big impression on just how I feel about books in general. Um, these are books that I very much enjoy. To describe this, and again, tapping into the wonderful, infallible resource of Wikipedia, <laughs> in young adult fiction, it typically touches on a very specific group of topics that deal with the people of their demographic, which is ages 12 to 18, which is, as listed here, very specifically, friendship, first love, relationships, coming of age, and identity. It's also an opportunity to talk about heavier topics that can't be brought up with the younger age group, which is 11 and younger, Hmm. which is anything involving 
death, murder stories, more tragic taboo topics that are kind of introduced to people at this age. So I kind of want to toss it back to you. What is kind of your experience with young adult novels growing up? Are there any that stick out to you as like keystones or figureheads in like what kind of defines the genre for you, whether in school or just in life? Anything come to mind in particular? Hmm. Yes. Interesting topic, specifically because I am not native English, right? And I feel like yes. a lot of, well, a lot of, honestly, like 90% of the YA that's that's happening here is either translated or it's the original English or, you mm-hmm. know, it's the 10% that actually is written in Dutch <laughs> or it's just another genre. So I guess Holland as a country is is very international in the sense of the book community. So in general, sure. we have very, very many translated books or just English readers in general. There's a big English sections and, you know, many of the books that are here in the, I guess, bestseller list are often already translated. So so to, to oh. be a Dutch writer is either to be a kind of classical writer in the way that we know, all, <laughs> yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you either have to kind of get into the more American version of writing to be popular because it's very much, oh. that's what ticks the boxes. Or you can definitely write in Dutch, but it's going to only reach the Dutch people. So it, it depends it. on how big you want to go for it. And with young adult, with YA, especially, I feel like so many YA books are just the English ones. Interesting. The famous ones that were famous in your place are probably (laughs) also famous in our place, like The Hunger Games, like Harry Potter. Hmm. Yeah, let me think. What are the famous ones? Or all of the sort of rom-com kind of... Becky Albertalli, I think, wrote a lot of sort of very cutesy, cutesy rom-com kind of YA novels. Or you have like the John Greens, The Fault in Our Stars Stars and Paper Towns and all, all of those. So there's a lot of American slash English influence in our YA scene, which is why I know Mm. all those books. I mean, I used to read them in Dutch and then eventually I switched to English anyway, in terms of what language they were written in. But I know a lot of the English titles because we have basically only English titles because they do well. They know they perform well. That's the ones that are going to get translated. So it's pretty hard to be a Dutch writer and kind of wedge yourself in between the translated literature in general. Mm. That's also why I really love Dutch children's novels, because they have a specific kind of flavor that's not always present in the also very good, but translated children's novels. And then you're going to kind of look back a little bit before we became so globalized, I guess. I think because of that also... I love a lot of English stuff because The Hunger Games is so good. I've talked about this all the time. The Hunger Games <laughs> mm-hmm, is just so mm-hmm. good. Some people have Harry Potter as their, you know, their coming of age, sure I did. guess, renaissance identity, <laughs> figuring out novel series. Probably The Hunger Games for me. I watched this with like my best friend from high school every year that the, that a new movie came out. And mm-hmm. I think I read the books. I got them from the library and then I was actually, I think, sleeping over at her place. And then I just couldn't stop reading. I was so right. I was so not nice during the whole weekend because <laughs> I wanted to finish my book. It was awful. Oh, no. Usually I'm social, but it wasn't when I was reading The Hunger Games because it was too good. Mm. That's a very fun memory. Oh, and there's also like the Twilight one. She was super into yeah. the Twilight and the vampire stuff. And I don't really like vampires until it's... Well, I mean, they have to convince me a little more. Usually all the dystopian <laughs> shit, I'm usually just like, let's go. This is great. And then the vampires sure, usually sure. I don't like unless it's really cool or you convince me to read one <laughs> in general. So she had, I think, the same thing with the, with all the Twilight movies, mm. which was like controversial too. I guess the same way it wasn't in America or in England. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of how the scene <laughs> works here. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. So that also means, by the way, that a lot of the books that I read are set in American or English towns, right? Because a lot of the English huh. literature is set in England or set in America. This is why mm. so many people in Holland, I find this very funny, are surprised that lockers are super small in our high schools. <laughs> like we have sort of square ones. Like, yeah, how, how big would you mm -hmm, say that is? Mm -hmm. Oh, why aren't they big enough to shove a kid into? You know, why aren't yeah. they nice and tall? You Good know? question. Like, why aren't they the cool sort of American, everyone spray paints their high school locker and you can you know, like, how do you say that? Customize the inside and put stickers and stuff. Nobody does that here. <laughs> you don't realize until you're in the first grade of high school and you're like, oh, mm. oh, right. This is not like the TV series that I watch because that's America. <laughs> well, let me tell you, at, growing up as a city kid, um, mm -hmm. we didn't have big lockers like that. We had we had smallish lockers. Lockers too. The, those those hallways Everything's full of lockers. What the hell? Those hallways are full of lockers that you see. That's all suburbia. That's all Midwest. Oh. Big old high schools okay. where they have room to make things that big. In the city, we got we got. You got tiny just, just ones as well. Bit. Okay, that yeah, makes yeah, me yeah, feel yeah. a little bit better. But now it's a sort of double psychology thing where I'm like, this is America. And I never realized this is not Holland. But then it's also <laughs> not all America that has big lockers. No, 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 no. Fucks with my brain. I can't deal with that. That is so... In I don't think I've ever thought about that, that like American and UK, uh, so to speak, literature is truly globalized and standardized mm, as for like sure. the, the young adult uh, standard, mostly because of marketing, mostly because that's what sells, right? You got to... You have a huge audience that speaks English, then you got to write in English. Uh, mm -hmm. I think bringing it, bringing up the angle from a creative perspective is so, so, so interesting. Yeah. And honestly, I wish it was different, not because I dislike English books, but because it gets very general very quickly. Of course. This is a bit like, not very nice of me, I guess, but I used to call... <laughs> Lay it on me. All of the books that were kind of like The Fault in Our Stars, like The Fault in Our Stars came out and then everyone was writing hospital books. <laughs> this is the not nice part, but I used to call them hospital books and I was just so fed up with the hospital themed books. Oh gosh. I was just so done. And I was like, can we please write something else? And the same happened with Harry Potter, right? Everything was suddenly magical schools. Mm. And the same oh, happened with the Hunger Games. Then Divergent came, the which Stopian is basically the era. Hunger Games, but different. And then the Maze Runner came. It's all sort of whatever works. And then people are going to write it forever until it sort of dries up. And then people are going to try something different. If you yeah. already have a very, I guess, uh, <laughs> Englishified scene in a country <laughs> that's not native English, yeah. good at English, but not native, then if even that scene gets general, then there's really very little to identify with. Oh, that's so interesting. What the heck? Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I guess to elaborate a little bit on the Dutch writing, <laughs> usually <laughs> Dutch writing is a little bit like dark humor, a little bit magic realism, and pretty sure. sparse usually. So it can be a little bit depressing. But it is specifically that a lot of <laughs> sort of the classical Dutch literature that we had to read in school, right? You won't know any of these names, but like the classical no, ones. on me. You never know. Okay. <laughs> one of my favorites is Renate Dorostein. I think I talked about her earlier. I've forgotten which you episode. Have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she does a lot of these sort of surreal, kind of dark, kind of comedic, but also very sad at the same time books mm. that I'm, yeah, the sort of combination is super weird and interesting. And unfortunately, she died, I think, a few years ago, um, but she has a lot of cool books. And then there's there's many writers that have this sort of weird kind of darkness in it, sort of sparse, but also dark and also kind of, <laughs> it's very sure, cool sure, if they can sure. make it make it that and also light and comedic or like funky at the same time. And that's mm. what lots of Dutch writers are more into. And then you have the things that I know about, which is Kidlit, the children's literature. And in Dutch, that's very whimsical, practical as well. It's a sort of fairy tales or like neighborhood stories, I would like to mm. call them. There's one writer that's called Annie M.G. Schmidt. She's a very wonderful little old lady. Um, I think she died. <laughs> I'm not sure. Or she's maybe still around. 
<laughs> we'll find out later. We gotta know. <laughs> I think she wrote one of the most famous ones ever, but it's about like a little guy that has a small little red crane wagon and he lives in a sort of apartment building and he just hangs out with his neighbors. And it's the whole culture about it is very Dutch setting. Like this is very much how mm. I would describe my youth in terms of feel, in terms of kind of how the buildings look, in terms of how the people behave. There's a specific feeling about it that's just really nice because I recognize it. And that's not very often the case in English literature because I just kind of assume this will be sort of general English landscape. Right. What does that even mean? That's not a thing. But in books, that's what I associate it with, where they uh -huh. have big lockers and where they have cars at 16 and where they, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I, I will say to the credit of the schools, a lot of the novels we read never take place in that high school general setting of like, hey, this is what's happening. You know, I think the teachers realize that the kids will read that no matter what. So it's like, hey, let's pick books that you're probably not going to read, like a dystopian fantasy, like mm. the Scarlet Letter, like Fair things enough. like that. Yeah. But then what I want to know is this sort of list of school books. Uh -huh. Does it also consist of YA? Because in our country, uh, YA is kind of frowned upon as official reading. You can't really pick a YA book for your English class or for your Dutch class because it's not high end enough, kind of. Interesting. Well, I guess then we have to tap into how we define YA, because for me, YA is all the books that are not appropriate for kids below the age of 11, but necessary readings for kids who are transitioning into adulthood. Hmm. So like all the books I listed are books that tackle like either real world history or philosophical topics or ideas of questions of morality. Hmm. You know, uh, you start to question the main characters stop, stop being heroes. They start being faulty characters. They start being imperfect. Uh, and it's about this transition or figuring out your identity or your individuality that is the major focus of these stories, you know? Obviously, there's many facets to YA, and you always get those vampire rom-coms and those high school diary of a wimpy kid type <laughs> type books, you know? Uh, and that'll always exist, but those weren't the required reading. Those were like, we know kids are going to read that anyway because it's relatable, right. because it's self-insert. You know, you could feel your own, you could put yourself in that story and it makes sense and it feels perfectly fine. And you're living mm. vicariously through the main character's decision. But there's yeah. also that facet of YA that is that can be read by adults and they'll still enjoy it. But it is just I don't want to say the word shallow, but kind of an introductory material into reading heavier material, darker material mm -hmm. and like morally ambiguous situations, you know, yeah, that sort of stuff. And for me, I kind of bouncing around. Obviously, we talk about in YA, if it's very heavily focused on marketing, there are a number of topics or a number of trends that kind of hit the YA scene. There's obviously the magic era. There's the dystopian era. There's obviously vampire high school rom-com. All of those are just kind of <laughs> uh, they kind of come out sets you know yeah uh-huh and for me my kind of keystone like foundational uh young adult series and i had to look it up because i forgot the name oh. but i'll never forget the book Traitor. i'll never forget the book okay i had i spent half an hour yesterday because i needed to know <laughs> what the book was because it yeah. truly like transformed my my views on like fiction and what kind of stories can be told this was a thing i found in the library back when I used to frequent libraries, um, my mom very much enforced, you must read. Reading is <laughs> reading is knowledge, you know? Uh, it's true. I don't read as much anymore, but it was certainly something I did as a kid. And the name of this series, the name of the first book, actually, I don't know what the name of the series is, Please. is <laughs> I discovered, I'm, I'm leading up to it, I'm building up. Uh, the name of the book is So You Want to Be a Wizard. Oh. And, I, and, I, and I don't <laughs> know... Cute. Why I, I assume I was a Harry Potter fan uh, since the age of seven. So I this list I looked at this book. I'm like, oh, it's yeah, perfect takes for me, the boxes. You know? Yeah, and 
it was not what I expected. And I, and I got to, I got to find, I found a PDF online just to, just to kind of get through the synopsis and the story. And I realized why I loved it so much. And it was basically about a girl who finds a guidebook. And instead of being like, so you want to be a painter or you want to be an author, the book says, so you want to be a wizard. And she picks it up and she's right. like, oh, well, this can't be true, but let's read it for fun. You know, I love books. Uh, and she reads <laughs> it and she starts learning how to command the fabric of the universe. And I was like 10 when I read this. Wow. And I'm like, wait Pretty a mind second. Blowing for a 10 year old. Wait yeah. a second. There are stories like this. And it was like <laughs> for the age group it targeted, like the main character was 13 and their friend was like 12, right? That was kind of the target demographic. It was notably complex. It was like you had to learn formulas. You had to dissect the the breakdown and foundations of the earth as we know it and how to twist it and manage it mm, using okay. magic. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, this is kind of sick because it took place <laughs> in New York City. The setting was New York oh, City. And I, okay, so cool I could well. pick out landmarks yeah. that I knew, but it was all magic. And it was my introduction into the field of not true fantasy, but urban fantasy, mm. a supernatural story in a setting that we are familiar with. And that opened my brain into what kind of stories could be told because it was, it kind of respected the intellect of the person reading it. It wasn't like, and this is a, this is a fiddly wink and this is the, <laughs> the broom that they ride. You know, it, it was, yeah. it was more like welcome to this next level of reading and it's still fun, you know, <laughs> and that's young adult for me in a nutshell. So I don't know if you have the same experience or if there was a book that you remember that kind of ticks that box for you. Yeah, that's very cool. So I feel that most of the YA that sticks with you is the YA that's just a little bit outside of your league in terms of when you're like 12 and you read a book that's kind of for a 14 year old, you're really learning <laughs> right. because your brain's expanding. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I feel like that happens with, with the books that stay with me the most. I remember there was one book. I'm not sure if it's urban fantasy. I honestly don't really know what genre it is because it's just pretty good and different, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but there's this one book that I found in the library, talking about libraries, by the way, absolute treasure chests, where you have course, to dig through the shitty stuff and then accidentally find beautiful <laughs> gems. It's the best. I love treasure hunting. I love secondhand stores. I love libraries. Okay, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. put that out of the way. I found one of these gems that is called Babel, Babel, I guess, like the Tower of Babel, mm. by, I think, a Flemish author. So from Belgium, never heard of this man before, never wrote, written anything else. No one knows about this book. Anyone that I tell about is like, well, I'm not really sure what that is. <laughs> and it's really good. It's basically the story of how two girls start interacting. One of them is in a wheelchair and is super fucking rich and lives in huh. the highest building in the entire city on like the top floor. She has an entire penthouse or something, but she's super lonely and kind of sad because she's, there's no one to relate to and she can't go anywhere because she's disabled or she feels like she can't go anywhere. And then there's this other girl who comes from, I guess, the slums or from a very troubled sort of lower class family that kind of works her way up the tower. This is, by the way, Got maybe it. also a little bit about the sort of 10 step plan that I talked about before. Like <laughs> this tower was literally structured as a sort of hierarchy of society. Like this tower was one of the most important buildings in the city. And basically Got like it. the Tower of Babel, it had a lot of, I guess, similarities mm. to that story in that regard. This second protagonist basically works her way up through the layers from her family. She got the message that the owner of the building, the sort of famous grandfather of this disabled girl, was the enemy. And she wanted to kind of take him out eventually. Sure, yeah. 
And she works her way through all these layers and you see sort of whole society of within this tower, within this sort of bubble that is the tower, oh. this community unfold as she slowly works her way up and gets higher paid or higher payments and gets better jobs and sort of slowly starts getting into the scene of the disabled girl, I guess. And they got become it, it. sort of surprisingly good friends because suddenly she has this girl around that's her age and that's from a world that she has no clue exists at all. Right. And they become really close, but there's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of political tension in there, but it's all very subtle and still through the eyes of these two girls that come from so different backgrounds. And it was just right. so good. And I feel like it was either <laughs> self-published or it was just published and forgotten about i don't know but this mm. book is great and no one knows about it <laughs> and specifically if you found this in a library and you weren't really searching for it and you don't really know what you're gonna read you're just casual yeah, about yeah, it yeah. and suddenly you read an amazing book and it's really good <laughs> and then you're like wow this is so not what i was expecting and that's really where the great stuff happened and i think that's always a little bit with books that are just a little bit too heavy or too intense for your usual reads and then you figure out right. there's more and then you sort of step up your game a little bit yeah yeah i think you touched on a lot of really cool things there young adult novels are specific like when i see them i always think like okay this is you're being introduced to a book and you're going to learn about something that you don't currently understand you know it, it is very much the introductory pathway to many people understanding or learning this kind of sort of sympathy if not empathy towards other people's situations or like yeah. learning about the world at large and the struggles that you will have to learn about stepping into adulthood and as you said like that's Story that you talked about with Babel, although it is like deeply fantastical, it also speaks on the intersectionality of people with very different lifestyles interacting and finding common ground, which is something that happens in daily life, especially in middle school, high school. You're running into all these people you truly have no clue where they came from, and you still kind of find that space where you get to interact and learn and are opened up to the greater world. Uh, I feel like the trend with young adult novels is that regardless of how fantastical or crazy or otherworldly they may get, there's also that ground that is. Like this book is for someone who is coming of age, someone who is yeah. finding out or figuring out who they want to be or who they wish to be. And it is time to present them with all the kinds of people they can be and they get mm. to choose kind of what they value and where their morals lie. Yeah, you know? that's cool. I like the way you phrase that because I think identity is, is such a big thing in these books. I also really like the list you had in the beginning, like friendship and identity mm. and coming of age and something else. In romance, I think was the last Because I really one. was yeah. thinking, yeah, really all the YA novels have all this in them <laughs> because it is what you're most busy with when you're like, I don't know, 15 or 16 or 14 or whatever. So that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I still love those books. I feel like you never kind of get over that. But of course, once you're more comfortable in your own skin and you're, you've passed the sort of <laughs> the high school <laughs> <Yeah>. minefield <laughs> that you have to pass <laughs> as a sort of ritual to come of age, I feel like most people kind of forget about YA or sort of move on to other subjects. And I feel like I never kind of got rid of children's literature because it's just so interesting to look at how people from a younger age group that you right. were once before behave or are targeted in books. I don't know. There's something very fascinating about Yeah. That. There is a deep similarity in the topics, but the perspective is what is different. So if you want to look at like the classic rom-com, right? 
you go if you look at a mm-hmm. YA versus like an adult novel, the the adult novel is going to talk about like their poise, how they carry themselves, their attitude, and also like th- important things about looks. But a YA novel is going to talk about like oh, this is the popular kid in school. It's like their status <laughs> in this in very specific setting. Yeah. You're going to talk about oh, they have like the coolest jeans and their and their varsity jacket, you know, mm-hmm. and like and yes. the way their hair is styled, and you know that energy <laughs> doesn't really change when it comes to adult books. It's just what they point out in particular that's important to them. And I feel like what I just love about kids' books is that there's less layers to sort of go through. You're so honest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's also why I think they just don't filter as much. There's just not a lot to sort of go through before you get to the actual person or the actual opinion of someone. And I think that's really nice and sort of that's fair. Yeah. refreshing to read because... I am a person that thinks a lot about other people's opinions and can get influenced a lot by other people's opinions about me. That makes no sense. You don't need to do that. Mm. You can be perfectly happy when you don't think about other people's <laughs> perspective on you all this the time. Is true. But kind of, I feel like goes with adulthood also a little bit. And I don't like that aspect. And kids books don't have it, which is great. So it kind of frees my brain up a little bit in that regard as well, which I think is fun. Kids books are so brutally honest sometimes. Yeah. It's like, they'll just let it rip and be like, I like you and then drop their lunch. And yeah. then, and then the, the whole school laughs at if them. If only like, it worked that way. Yeah. <laughs> that it's, it's so, it's so, it's so straightforward sometimes. <laughs> and you know, the, the nuance and the layers and the onion peeling comes later in adulthood. And sometimes I don't care about that stuff. You know, <laughs> sometimes yeah. I just want I want a character that just moves forward and punches the world, punches yeah. life one day at a time, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> With the audacity that only a teen knows, you know? Mm. <laughs> but yeah, that's young adult novels in a nutshell and uh, have a very, very soft spot for it because, mm. you know, it formed the, uh, what I like now. And that's yeah. the bottom line. I think that counts for a lot of people. Yeah. There's also, and then I'll round off because we've been mm-hmm. going for a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. There's also this one, I guess, little discussion in Holland going on. Our stats for how many kids like to read are surprisingly low mm. and actually like very terribly low, like one of the lowest in the world somehow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think it is partly because we have a subject called understanding reading, which mm. basically means efficient or effective reading for making summaries or, you know, going through like an, an intense piece of text. And it kills all the fun of reading, basically, is what people are saying sure. right now. Yeah, yeah. Which makes people really hate reading, which is a shame. Mm. And another reason for that drop of why no one, you know, very little kids like reading anymore is because we can't read YA novels in school. And huh. the things that we identify with, such as YA novels, when you're 14, we can't read. So instead, you would have to read the sort of adult literature in a Dutch class or something. Mm. And that's not really like tempting as a a 12 year old or as a 14 year old. It really becomes a chore. And then people don't like reading in general. And suddenly you forget that there's all these great books out there that no no one's reading. Yeah. So that's also a big part of it. That's also why the looking down at YA novels or at kids books in general is pretty dangerous. You really lose connection with the audience that you really want to get, which is children. Of course. If they can't access the things that are made for them. And that's pretty, uh, yeah, pretty tricky. So that's an interesting interesting part of this discussion as well i think in terms of like translated literature and what you get in school and what what is kind of academic reading or whatever you want to call it Uh, yeah just to just to touch on that and again we're gonna bounce we're gonna bounce to the next (laughs) topic i guess it's all about perspective right a lot of the books that i read in high school middle school or high school i thought were boring and and stuffy but like as i grew up and kind of remembered what they were about i really grew to appreciate them and like all the books that i listed i didn't necessarily enjoy the first read through but reflecting back on it i truly did Hmm. and read for leisure is something that wasn't necessarily encouraged by culture. And I mean, it's very hard nowadays in the digital age where there's videos and stuff like that. 
um, and the social media and all that and different kinds of stimuli. But when I was a kid, the library would have these kind of summer reading lists. And the more the more rows you fill out of books you've read over the summer, the more prizes you can get from their little like, bag of goodies. And my, my mom was always <laughs> oh, like, that's cute. All right. Well, it's going to be a competition between you and your siblings. Whoever gets the most <laughs> books gets a dollar. And then we're like, oh, a dollar. And we just read like 20 books uh-huh. for it. You know, that's cool. And uh, my mom was very crafty and it that's worked. That's good parenting. So. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Do anything for a dollar. Of course, of course. But yeah. Okay. Uh, and with that, that is that is an expansive topic that we can certainly delve into the subgenre yeah, sometime. Much to that talk is about. not today. <laughs> but uh, we always round off our podcast with a prompt, uh, an entirely improvised prompt that one provides to the other. And I believe Marley has the prompt for today. Yes, that's true. Lay it on me. Okay, here's the prompt. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Greenbridge. I'm so good at podcasting today. You're so good. You're so good. I'm so natural. Yeah, yeah. Okay, since we were talking about no man's land, Mm -hmm. I want... What do you want? A no man's land to be the focus of this. And within that no man's land, you can fill this in however you like. Our protagonist finds a stranger. Who is the stranger? What the... (laughs) It's so open. Oh I know. gosh. Okay. Um, oh, I have a couple of ideas. What's the most interesting? Let me see. Oh, I'm thinking of previous prompts now. We did have some previous prompts. <laughs> At some point we're gonna like struggle to like remember which one was which. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you just give me a second, I can do this. Hold on. Okay, screw it. We're gonna wing it. Okay, we're gonna see <laughs> we're gonna say I'm, I'm gonna say things and we're Hit just gonna me. see where that goes. Um, yeah. Okay, so No Man's Land, my favorite No Man's Land, I feel like it's great for storytelling, is the desert. Yeah. Point A, point B, protagonist has to get from one place to the next. This is a very expansive desert, but obviously the important location of the city B is uh, off in the distance. and They have to travel alone, unfortunately. They have no companions to accompany them. They mm-hmm. okay. have been traveling through the desert for about four or five days now. It's hard to tell. They've lost count of the sunrises and sunsets. Their canteen is empty. Their rations are scarce. They look towards the sky and feel no love as the cloudless sky bears down on them and they feel their breath getting heavier and heavier as they continue to go over dune after dune after dune. Do they even know if they're walking in the right direction anymore? Hard to tell. But Mm -hmm. on the afternoon of the fifth day, they find a dune that looks a little bit different from the rest. The sand is colored a strange reddish orange in contrast to the bright yellow of the rest. And... Seeking anything interesting in particular, the protagonist walks towards this dune, hoping to find something interesting. Maybe this is the color of wet sand. Maybe there's water here. They arrive and they see a small hole going into what seems to be a solidified surface. This is not, this is not just a normal Ooh. dune. This is a cave. And they slip in, appreciating the shade that this enclave provides for them. And for a moment, they just sit there and respite. They don't see anybody. This tunnel continues for a little ways downward. It's almost like a tunnel of sorts, which is very, very strange. And eventually, as the sun begins to set and the day grows colder, they want to start a fire to keep themselves warm through the cold night, and they do so. They pull out what remains of their flint and uh, small pieces of wood from their bag, and they light a small bonfire. And as they do, approaching from the distance, the dark shadow, about as large as the dunes itself, slowly approaching this small hidey hole. And they learn that it's not a singular figure, but rather a mass, a mound walking towards this dune. Almost like a wave moving on its own, shifting its way between the dunes like a serpent. And they arrive and they look at this traveler. And to the traveler, it looks like just a mess of shadows, kind of 
you could see a collection of eyes peering back at him uh, in this kind of conglomerate body. And he stares and speaks in a whispering voice and says, why have you come here? The protagonist speaks and says, because there is nowhere else to be. You see the eyes kind of discuss amongst themselves, hold a small council within their shadowy body. And they say, (laughs) then stay. Stay as long as you like. Let us show you around. And they slip past the protagonist into this tunnel. And the main character follows. It goes deeper and deeper, farther down below the sands, to the point that the entirety of the dunes and the collection of yellow has shifted into a hardened stone, the streaks of color indicating ages upon ages of how long this place has existed. The hot bearing downs of the sun are replaced with this coolness of this almost dampness. And the protagonist breaks through towards the end of the tunnel and sees what could only be described as another sun, another world. Beneath the desert sands, in this one space where the sand turns this reddish orange, the protagonist finds a gateway, introduced by these traveling forces, that as they are revealed in this new sun beneath the surface, these shadowy bodies are illuminated and turned vibrant, given a uh, luminescent rainbow-ish color. As the spectrum of light hits them and you see suddenly this conglomerous body is full of individuals. The protagonist looks upon this new world, thinks about the point B, the city that he was headed to, and wonders to himself, maybe I could stay here for a bit. Just a little bit longer. And that's where I'll cut the story. It ended up being more of a a setting piece more than a character breakdown. I wanted a stranger and I got a universe. (laughs) Oh, sorry, my bad. I got a stranger and a universe, I should say. This is great. Yeah, I was trying to piece together like what kind of stranger I was looking for. And I'm like, what if it's just a whole lot of strangers? What if it's like many in one body? (laughs) What if he's the stranger and they're the people who are... (gasps) Oh my God. Mind break. (laughs) Yes. Okay, well, that's That's all I got for today. I love it. Yeah. Deserts are such good places to just storytell in. Yeah. It's so aesthetic. I I like when places that are entirely vacant, and you've played Breath of the Wild, you know this, you find just this one thing in the middle of the desert that you'd never run into otherwise, and it just ends up being this whole big thing. And you think of like that one developer who (laughs) has just spent days and months on something that some people will never, ever find. It's the most satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you just tell all your friends, like, hey, I found this thing in the desert. You got to check it out. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're not yeah. even playing the game at this point. Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. that's definitely a lot of my conversations with friends. <laughs> I had this just yesterday when someone was like, come to my Animal Crossing island. And I was like, well, I don't have Animal Crossing, but cool. <laughs> I don't have Animal Crossing. It it's really sad. hard for me to visit. Sad moment. But yeah, let's, Sorry, let's wrap anyway. up this episode because it has been a little bit it's, of a while. It's a long, yeah, it's a long one. Next week is our Halloween episode and hopefully we'll bring something a little bit spooky to the table. Spoopy. But uh, you can wait on that. Yes, please. It's a little bit spooky. Uh, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna hold that for next episode to tune in uh, as we once again tackle the topics of world building and storytelling. This episode was really, really fun. Yeah. If you ever have the urge to world build or storytell on your own, whether in uh, tandem with others or by yourself, it's always very fun. Think about these things as we bring them up in episode upon episode upon episode. And as you do, as you ponder on these things, there's always one thing you need to know first and foremost. Yeah. And that is... There's that one thing. The one thing. Your rivers are wrong. Yeah. Have a good one. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Your Rivers Are Wrong. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes that you'd like to hear us cover, feel free to contact us at yourriversarewrong at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is written by Maarten Schellekens. Thanks for that. 
And again, thank you so much for listening. We hope to see you at the next one.